Let's open our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. We just finished verses 8 through 12 in Isaiah chapter 9. And if you notice in verse 12, the last part of the verse, it says, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. We find that that's the first stanza of four different stanzas of judgments that God is bringing upon Israel using wicked nations to be the chastening rod. A wicked nation, I should say, and that's the the kingdom of Assyria. And you find four times over this word, for all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. To mark these different sections, that first one is verses 8 through 12, the first one that we just studied, and that's like one stanza in this judgment. And then if you'll notice, the next section, and let me give you the sections, then we'll deal with them, is verses 13 through 17. Look at verse 17, the latter part of the verse. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. The next section is the end of the chapter, verse 21. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And then chapter 10 through verse 4, it says, For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And that, is, that concludes the four different times that we find this uh, statement showing us four different uh, times of judgment upon the people because of their uh, indifference and because of their failure to repent. And the reason God says for all this, for all this judgment, for all that's happened, He says His hand is stretched out still, means His hand is stretched out still, still chastening them, but also His hand is stretched out still because He wants them to repent and turn to Him. So, Just because God's hand is stretched out in judgment doesn't mean that it's not stretched out in mercy as well. It means that at the same time He's judging, He's wanting God's people to repent of their sins and to meet the condition whereby He'll lift the chastening rod and turn things back in their favor. And that's not only true of the nation of Israel, but it's true for you and I. God does not delight in having to chasten His children. But... Sometimes it's necessary. I don't think there's a father or mother here tonight that delights in having to chasten their children. But they are thankful when they see that that chastening does some good and the child turns and tries to be obedient and tries to do what uh, is best and right. And that's what God expects us to do, is to turn to Him and to do what is best and right in His sight. And then He will not have to have His arms stretched out to chasten us. Now then, we dealt with that first section, verses 8 through 12, and we said that the coming attacks upon uh, Ephraim and the coming attacks upon uh, Israel, and they're named in the form of Ephraim. If you turn back to verse 8 and verse 9, it says, uh, The Lord sent a word unto Jacob, and it hath lighted upon Israel, so Israel is spoken of. Then it says, and all the people shall know, even Ephraim. Even Ephraim and the, and the nation is addressed under the title of one of the sons of Joseph being Ephraim. Now, 
And it says because of his pride is the reason that this happened. The reason this first punishment that we dealt with was because of pride. Now then, verses 13 through 17, we see an impenitent nation. A, a, a nation that will not repent, even though uh, God is uh, chastening them. Now look at verse 13. It says, For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. Now, God had permitted the, the smiting, and it's just as a child is a child that's disciplined turns back to the parent for love after it's disciplined, these people wouldn't turn back to God who had disciplined them. Notice it says, For the people turneth not unto him that smiteth uh, them, neither do they seek the Lord of hosts. How many times have children been chastened, corrected, and then they'll come to mom and daddy and they'll say, you know, they're sorry, and they'll turn back to the one that has smitten them or chastened them. Well, uh, Israel wouldn't do that. Sometimes you and I do not do that when God chastens us. We do not turn back to God as a loving, the Father as a loving parent, which we should turn back to the, the parent that corrects us. And then it says in verse uh, 14, Therefore the Lord, therefore, look, the Lord will cut off from Israel head and, ta- head and tail, branch and rush in one day. The ancient and the honorable, he is the head. And the prophet that teacheth lies, he is the tale. In other words, God's judgment will come upon the leaders of God's people. And he'll come upon the common folk as well as the leaders. And upon the rich and upon the poor. And upon the religious and upon the politicians. Verse 16 says, For the leaders of this people cause them to err. And they that are led of them are destroyed. They that are led of them that are destroyed. You see... The leaders not only have a responsibility, look at verse 16, but the people have a responsibility to not be led into error, regardless of the leaders. And it says, and they that are led of them are destroyed. You might say, well, this leader, and we have this a lot in cultism today, a lot of the people that have fallen into these various cults, and if they ever do get enlightened and they say well this leader caused me to do that well this leader caused you to do that but you had a responsibility not to accept that kind of falsity that was given to you that kind of false uh, doctrine and by the way you should weigh everything that comes from any pulpit you should weigh everything that any preacher preaches and see if it's scriptural doesn't make any difference who he is Paul said that the Bereans were more noble than those of Thessalonica in that they searched the Scriptures daily to see if what Paul preached himself was true. And Paul didn't mind their, uh, their searching the Scriptures. And if a preacher is preaching the truth, he does not mind you searching out the Word of God because that's where he should stand. And if he doesn't stand there, he has a right to be uh, questioned. If a preacher doesn't stand upon the Word of God, he has a right for you to question him. So, it says, verse 16, For the leaders of this people cause them to err. The word err is to miss the mark, to go astray, to not hit the right, not do the right thing. And they that are led of them are destroyed. They that are led of them. And it says, Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men. The young men are to be the strong ones. Remember, uh, John says, I write unto you young men because you are strong and the word of God abideth in you and you have overcome the wicked one. In the book of 1 John. 
He says, I've written unto you young men, what? Because you're strong. And he says, you've overcome the wicked one. He says, the word of God abideth in you. Why are people strong? How is it that someone overcomes the wicked one? The word of God abideth in you. If the word of God abideth in you, it makes you strong. That is the reason you need to be feeding upon the word of God and to be, and to be constantly strengthened by the word of God. If people say, well, you know, I'm just so spiritually weak. I'll tell you where the strength is right here. Look in the book of Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. I think I mentioned it Sunday. Remember the apostles were going to choose out seven men that they could count on of good report. Look in verse 3. Acts chapter 6 verse 3. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report. Now look. Full of the Holy Ghost... Holy Spirit, and wisdom, and wisdom, okay, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. The congregation thought that was a good good uh, thing to do. And they chose Stephen, a man full of, full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. Now look, a man named Stephen was full of faith. How is it that he was full of faith? Faith cometh by what? Hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. So he was full of faith. He wouldn't have been full of faith if he hadn't been full of the Word of God. And it says, and of the Holy Ghost. He was full of faith and full of the Holy Ghost. As a reason. Now then, on down in verse uh, 7, And the Word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of faith and what? Is linked with faith. Power. That's strength, isn't it? Look at all the things that are involved in being full of the Word of God. You're full of the Word of God. You're full of faith. You are full of the Holy Spirit. You're full of uh, wisdom. You're full of power. Because up in verse 3, they said, we want men full of uh, the Holy Ghost and wisdom. Right? Verse 3. So these men fit the bill. They were full of wisdom. But first, they're full of faith. They're full of wisdom. See, you get wisdom from the Word of God too. And the Holy Spirit's uh, anointing goes along with the Word of God. The Bible says that He has sent the Holy Spirit that He may uh, speak and bear witness to the truth. What's the truth? The Word of God. You tell me a fellow that's filled with the Holy Spirit and I'll tell you a fellow that's filled with the Word of God. If you say there's a man filled with the Holy Spirit here and he doesn't know anything about the Word of God, I've got my question marks about that. Because the Word of God brings a fullness of strength, a fullness of wisdom, a fullness of the Holy Spirit, and a fullness of power. And that's the source of it. So back in our text, if you'll turn to the book of Isaiah, chapter uh, 9 and verse 17, Therefore the Lord shall have no joy in their young men, the young men that were to be strong, neither shall he... Neither shall have mercy on their fatherless and widows. God said He wouldn't even have mercy upon their fatherless and widows. And God was... These were ordinarily the objects of God's mercy. But why would He not have mercy upon their fatherless and widows? You see, just because a person meets this condition of needing mercy from God doesn't mean that he deserves it. You say, well, the poor, they need God's help. Sure, all the poor needs God's, need God's help. But a poor, a poor person can be just as sinful as a, a rich person. Did you know that? 
The Bible says, they that will be rich fall in. Listen, not the rich. But they that will be rich fall into a temptation and a snare into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men's souls in perdition. Right? So, it's the will be rich that's just as sinful as the rich. So, here God would have ordinarily had mercy and God did make uh, provision for the fatherless and the widows under the law. But they had come to such condition, not only the young men, the leaders had caused them to err, verse 16, <clears throat> and those that are led of them are destroyed. The Lord shall have no, no mercy on their, no joy in their young men, neither shall he have mercy on, on their fatherless and widows, for every one is an hypocrite and an evildoer. All of them, the whole nation, from those that were rich and leaders and from those that were uh, uh, responsible men to those that were being led by them, and they had all become corrupt. And every one, it says, for every one is an hypocrite and an evildoer, and every mouth speaketh folly. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. That was the second one of these stanzas of chastening that God brought. Now, the third one begins with verse 18. And it goes through verse 21. We're in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 18. And it'll end in verse 21 with the same refrain that we've already studied. For all this, his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. But let's pick up with verse 18 and we'll see... The wrath of Jehovah. We saw in the last one, the impenitent nation. In the first section that we studied, there was judgment upon Israel because of pride. Remember the one we took last week and I just reminded you of tonight. So this is the third one of these stanzas of judgment. It says in verse uh, 18, For wickedness burneth as a fire. It shall devour the briars and thorns and shall kindle in the thickets of the forest and they shall mount up like a lifting up of smoke. In other words, the, uh, the nation itself was, was good tender for burning fire of God's judgment. They really had met the condition to be consumed by fire. They were like briars and thorns and, and uh, shall kindle in the thickets of the forest. In other words, they were ready. Briars and thorns refers to the wicked especially of the low, low rank. And it says in verse uh, 19, Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts is the land darkened. In other words, it is burnt so that it was darkened. And the people shall be as fuel for the, for, of the fire. No man shall spare his brother. It means that there was, they were all fuel for the fire. The people shall be as fuel for the fire. And no man shall spare his brother. Indication that there was a civil strife among them. No man shall spare his brother. What, that, what were they to do? They were to have brotherly love, just like Christians are taught today to have brotherly love. In the Old Testament, this same truth was taught. Remember at one time, I believe you might find it in, probably in the book of Amos, where he said that uh, uh, people were just living in pleasure and they were not, they were not, uh, they were not uh, concerned about the affliction of Joseph. They were not concerned about their brother that was afflicted. And they were so concerned with their own lives that they had no concern about someone that was sick or someone that was hurting or someone that was in need. You see, we can get in that same condition. We can get in that same condition, beloved. That we become so selfish, we, we're not concerned about uh, serving and giving of ourselves so that other people may be 
uh, instructed in the Word of God so that other people may have the necessities of life so that we might be able to help someone in need. We used to sing a song, Help Somebody Today, Somebody Along Life's Way. And it doesn't make any difference who it is as long as you're doing what God wants you to do. Ask to be led of the Holy Spirit to be guided in the right direction, to do the right thing for the right people. doesn't mean that everybody comes along you should take on as a dependent. I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about being loving and caring and merciful, kind and caring about folks. And so it says here, no man shall spare his brother. In verse 20, look at it. And he shall snatch on the right hand and be hungry, and he shall eat on the left hand, and they shall not be satisfied. In other words, they're grasping for everything from one brother to another, and they're still not satisfied. They shall eat every man the flesh of his own arm. In other words, as, as much as if he uh, took his own arm. And then it says in verse 21, Manasseh, Ephraim, and Ephraim, Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. These two sons of Joseph, Manasseh and Ephraim, nations and tribes now, we'll call them tribes of Israel, Manasseh and Ephraim. These two sons of Joseph, two tribal areas that were at odds with each other, now they are united against Judah, one of their own brethren. You see, they were at odds with each other before, Manasseh and Ephraim. And now they're united against another brother. Remember what the scripture says, one brother taking another brother to law, united against another brother. The only time a Christian should be uh, involved in, in court is when it's absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. And sometimes it is. I'm not saying you can stay out of it. Don't misunderstand me. You have to do what you have to do. But on the other hand, just because you and I have a difference with one another doesn't mean you and I should sue one another. There ought to be a way we can settle this difference some way. And let's try to do it that way. But when we find out that it's impossible to do it that way, of course, there are other measures have to be taken. But verse 21 says, Manasseh Ephraim and Ephraim Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. Isn't it awful when trouble arises from our own ranks? Isn't it a bad thing when there's, when there's uh, no unity, break of unity in the church? We've seen it in local churches. We've seen it in denominations. We've seen it uh, in various uh, other things. But it's bad when it's in a local congregation. And that's why Paul uh, says to the Ephesians and also indicates the same thing in Philippians. He says, uh, endeavoring in Ephesians. Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Endeavoring. That means really working hard at it. That means purposely trying to keep. Not make it, but keep it. To keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And listen, friend, the best way we can do that, you know how we can do that? How can you keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace? Whenever there's any trouble arises, you get right yourself. And that'll solve the problem. You say, well, what about that fellow? Well, if he gets right, the problem's solved, isn't it? If that other fellow that's got a problem and got something against you or something that's not right in the church, when he gets right, that solves the problem. 
So all you got to do is make sure that everyone has a repentant heart and is willing to put it all before God and repent of their sins and then there can be harmony and fellowship. But when anyone is rebellious and lifted up with pride and is contentious, there's not going to be fellowship and unity. And it says only, listen, it says only by pride come a contention. What does that mean? If that's the only way it can come, if there's contention in the church, there has to be somebody that's, that's pr- proud. There has to be somebody that's filled with pride and will not humble themselves before God. Because it says only by pride. It didn't say by pride and by this and by that and by something else. But it says only by pride cometh contention. So we want to keep our fellowship with one another right, don't we? So it says in verse 21, look at uh, Isaiah 9 verse 21. It says, Manasseh, Ephraim, Ephraim, Manasseh, and they together shall be against Judah. For all this his anger is not turned away. God wants his people to be together. He wants them to love one another. And He wants them to uh, care for one another. He doesn't want this disunity. He doesn't want two brothers against one. He doesn't want the nation divided. And they were. He doesn't want the church divided. So He says, but His hand is stretched out still. Now chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we have the last of these refrains. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And this is the unrighteous judges... That we'll speak of. And then the, there are three question that, questions that God asks them in verse 3. But look in verses 1 through 4. Chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. Watch this. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, and that write grievousness which they have prescribed. To turn aside the needy from judgment, and to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. In other words, the rulers here, woe to them that decree unrighteous decrees. The rulers, not the scribes, they make unjust laws and then they wrongfully apply existing laws. Does that sound familiar? They make unjust laws and they wrongly apply existing laws. God had given them laws to go by in the Old Testament concerning the needy, and the poor, hadn't he? And the fatherless. And he says that they turn, they turn aside the needy from judgment. And he says, and to take away the right of the, from the poor of my people, that the widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. You see, that's greed. That's trying to take advantage of those that are, are disadvantaged. That's trying to take, take advantage of those who are helpless. And... Can, are easy prey. And we have that same nation, uh, thing in our nation today, almost nationwide. People taking advantage of the one that doesn't have power to resist that advantage. You know, there are some people that try just as hard as you have to do right and to succeed that have never had the opportunities that you've had. And it doesn't mean that they haven't tried just as hard. In fact, they may have worked harder to try to succeed than others that have succeeded in some things. Hard work sometimes is just hard work. And that's what it amounts to for many. And other people uh, seem to to be uh, going up the ladder with their hard work. 
and other people go up the ladder without any hard work, by the advantage of other people. So it's, you know, we quoted one, and I remember Paul looking at me when I quoted that many times ago. It says, we have seen, we was teaching in Ecclesiastes, that the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong. Why shouldn't the race be to the swift? Well, if he's faster, he ought to outrun you, shouldn't he? Why, why shouldn't the battle belong to the strong? Because it says, with time and chance, happeneth to them all. In other words, if it's in the purpose and plan of God, many times some people that are swift and running the race do not win the, win the race because of certain circumstances. There are certain circumstances that can enter into the picture of your life that may not exactly turn out uh, like you would like them to turn out and, and that they really should, everything being equal. But what I'm saying is, you and I, regardless of how things turn out, ought to be thankful day by day and, and for the grace of God that we enjoy the blessings that are given us day by day and not complain about it. We have a lot of times we complain. The Bible says, do all things without murmuring. Listen, do all things without murmuring and complaining that you may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. How are you going to shine as a light if you're always complaining? We ought to learn to be satisfied, shouldn't we? We ought to learn to be happy. Someone says, can you be happy? Well, I try to be happy when I'm hurting. I try to be happy when things are not going like I'd like them to do. I try to be happy all the time. And I can say that reasonably so I am. I don't mean that I don't have problems like you do or anyone else. But when I have a problem, I think, well, this problem has to be faced. And I'm glad that I have the ability to face it. I mean, you know, if you have a flat tire, go change the thing. Don't, don't complain about it. Right? If your sewer line stops up, go out there and get your rod and clean it out. If you've got a water leak, start getting your wrenches out and fix the thing. In other words, do something about the problems you face. Don't just, don't just say, oh me, why did it have to happen to me? All these things are common temptations that happen to man, and we should learn how to face every situation. And life is not promised to be easy. We sing a song, should I be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease while others sought to win the prize and sail through bloody seas? It doesn't work that way, does it? You and I have to suffer the losses the same as other people. But notice, the rulers, not the scribes, warn to them that decree unrighteous decrees and that right grievous grievousness which they have prescribed. That's chapter 10, verse 1. They make unjust laws and they wrongfully apply the existing laws to turn aside the needy from judgment, to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey and that they may rob the fatherless. And verse 3 gives us three questions. By the way, the Old Testament law, before we get to verse 3, the Old Testament law is the basis of social justice. The Old Testament law is the basis of social justice. The Old Testament law is still the basis of social justice. Remember the, the judge down there in the south that has the Ten Commandments displayed in his courtroom and they're trying to get him to take them down? He says, not so. Our nation was founded upon laws, wasn't it? And it was founded upon those very laws. And I, and I, hope, he, I hope they never can make him take them down. 
But you know we've got some crazy laws that are unjust, don't we? People make unjust laws and they might accidentally get it through to where you'd have to take them down. It's going to probably go to the Supreme Court. But at least I admire him for standing his ground. He's got a display of the Ten Commandments. Why not? What's wrong with displaying the Ten Commandments? If you had some vulgar thing that you wanted to display on the courthouse wall, they'd probably let you do that. And no questions asked. Because the ACLU would say, well, that's American civil liberties, you know. You've got a right to display what you want. But not the Ten Commandments. You see, that's unjust, isn't it? If you could, in, if you could portray anything else on the wall that was in someone else's favor... Why can't you put the Ten Commandments up on there when this is all of God? And I admire him for doing it. But anyway, in verse uh, 3, the Lord asked him three questions. He says, And what will you do in the day of visitation and in the, the desolation which shall come from far? What shall you do in the day of visitation, the day when he would visit judgment upon them from where? From far off. He was referring here to the Assyrian. He's saying, what will you do then? We might ask the question uh, to ourselves of our nation. What would we do if we were to be visited with divine judgment through an ungodly nation from afar off? In other words, an invasion from some wicked nation upon our own nation. What would we do? Would we turn to God? Or would we still may, uh, remain unrepentant as this indicates that they did? In verse 4, we'll see his arm was stretched out still. What will you do? In other words, there would be no escape from the wrath of God. Sometimes there is no escape from what, it, what God's judgment is in coming. And the reason there's no escape because of lack of repentance. If ever a people, you and I, should repent of our sins and ask God for guidance, it's in this day and hour. Every last one of us. And then, not only as... An individual, but as a local church, make sure that the church is right with God. And then make sure that we do what God wants us to do as a local New Testament church. And by the way, in, in the midst of doing all of this, stand upon your convictions as a Bible-believing Baptist. Don't be ashamed of it. There's so many people nowadays, they say, let's take the name Baptist off to the front of the church because it offends people. Brother, it'll never be taken off of this one if, as long as I'm able to see that it's there. I'm not ashamed of Baptists at all. And I believe that the Baptist fundamentals have been stood for and paid for by the blood of martyrs throughout the dark ages and throughout the years. And you and I ought to be grateful to, to wear the name. Independent, Bible-believing, premillennial, pre-tribulation too. Baptists. We believe Christ is coming before the tribulation and that there will be a tribulation upon this earth and at the end of that tribulation there will be the premillennial return of Christ to this earth and that He will be here when the rule and reign of righteousness is upon this earth. He'll be here on this earth. The Bible teaches that. And you and I ought to have enough conviction to stand for it. So, it says, what will you do in the day of visitation in the, and in the desolation which shall come from far? And it was coming from the Assyrian. And then here's the second question. Look in verse 3. To whom will you flee for help? God would no longer be their helper. Who are you going to look to for help if God is not your helper? Who can we look to? Remember the 
disciples that the people that quit following Jesus that were with him. And uh, Jesus said to the disciples, said, will ye also go away? And Peter, he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the words of eternal life. You and I cannot go away. Who are you going to look to for help? To whom will you flee for help? The Bible says that Christians have fled to Christ for refuge. To lay hold upon the hope that is laid before us. And we have fled to Christ for help. And we found in Him a refuge. A refuge from, from all that would beset us. And then it says, And where will ye leave your glory? Look in the verse 4. Without me they shall bow down under the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. God says, without me. Look at those words, without me. I underline words like that. Without me. Underline, what will you do? Up there in verse 3. Underline, to turn aside. Up in verse 2. In verse 1, woe unto them that decree. In verse 1. And get the emphasis there. And then in this verse 4, the fourth verse, the last stanza of this judgment that we're talking about. It says in verse 4, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still, because they had still not repented, and his hand was still stretched out. Now verses 5 through 11, we have a description of the Assyrian army. And then we have the overthrow of his army that's announced in verses 12 through 15. By the way, I'll just give you the title as we come to the sections because there's about seven titles in the remainder of the chapter to show you the divisions of it. But let's take verses 5 through 11. It says, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger, and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. God's instrument for punishing Judah, God's instrument for punishing his people, was the Assyrian, a foreigner, a foreign nation to whom they would have to submit and be taken away into captivity. The Assyrian, the rod of mine anger. You see, Israel was God's chosen people, but he has, he has to use another nation to be his rod, to chasten his own people. Sometimes you and I say, well, why did this person over here or this nation over here so treat us this way that we've been treated well, maybe we needed that treatment and maybe this was God's rod to, to bring a little adjustment to our case, to our situation. We sometimes wonder about the wars and the unjust things that happen and the nations that we have to deal with. You, you go back and look since World War I and notice how things have changed from time to time. If you study history. You find in World War One a different situation than in World War Two. You get to World War Two, and what? Russia was an ally, right? And then look how things changed right sharply after that, and we've got scared to death of them. And the nuclear powers begin to come into to existence, and now we're trying to get on friendly terms again. It seems like that's not working out too well. A lot of people may think it is, but. Still got its problems, complications. But you see, one nation at one time, and now we've, we're just friendly as we can be with Japan. We're having to try to renew relationships or try to even establish relationships with China. And China's got the greatest standing army in the whole world. More men in their army. 
And we talk about being powerful. And the Bible speaks of a time in the tribulation when the river Euphrates will be dried up and to make way for the kings of the east to come in in invasion. And I wouldn't be a bit surprised with what is China and all the area around China and all the eastern Asian countries that will come in to the land of Palestine, to Jerusalem, and to the places where the battles are spoken of to take place. You see, a lot of things are happening that we have no control over. But God was using here, and I hope I haven't misstated too many facts trying to just uh, draw these things off the top of my head. But on the other hand, look here in verse 5. It says, O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff of their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation. The word hypocritical nation means a godless nation. And that was his own people that was hypocritical and godly. And and, uh, godless. And he says, uh, And against the people of my wrath will I give him charge to take the spoil and to take the prey. Spoil and prey. Remember the two sons of Isaiah? The first one, Meher, Shalal, Hashbas, was speed to the spoil. And it says that this nation, and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Spoil and the prey, to tread them down like the mire of the streets. And God says He's going to use this Assyrian to bring this kind of judgment upon His own people. You say, well, what justice is that? That is exactly what God is doing. He's bringing justice. Because of their sins. And He had to judge them and punish them. <clears throat> you think God is not a God of power and judge, uh, judgment and righteousness? When you watch what God did to Israel, you and I ought to uh, be thankful that he's, this is a day and age of grace because we would, this nation, this people would deserve a lot of judgment. We look round about us and in society today and we see some things that are equivalent to the days of Sodom and Gomorrah. We see some things that are equivalent to the days of Israel's rebellion of idolatry and idolatry, don't we? And yet God is merciful to us and we can be thankful that we haven't had to face such judgment as the nation of Israel has faced. And of course it's applicable to the church as well. Let's go on down. In verse 7 it says, How be it he meaneth not so. What does it mean? He the Assyrian meaneth not so. (coughs) The Assyrian here is only thinking of his own purposes. He doesn't know that he's doing the things that God wants him to do. But the Assyrian, the Assyrian in seeking his own purpose is doing what God had predicted and had purpose that he would do in bringing judgment and chastening upon Israel. Not realizing that God is the force behind his actions. Do we know that God is the force behind his actions? Look at that. Look at verse 7. My, that's full of meaning. How be it he meaneth not so, this Assyrian, Neither doth his heart think so. It is in his, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. The king of Assyria. Man's plans, though they are used to fulfill God's will, are not blameless. He was not blameless in what he was doing because he was doing a wicked thing, and yet God was permitting it to be done because he was a rod in God's hand to bring judgment upon Israel. You see that? Man's plans. Joseph's brethren were not blameless for sending him to Egypt, selling him into slavery, were they? But Joseph later on says, 
when he was revealed to his brethren, when things turned out, he said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. To preserve you alive to this day. To save your lives. To preserve you. You see, they meant it for evil. They were not blameless in what they did. But God is overall, and He's going to overrule it in the case of Joseph. And God meant it for good. Here, this man, this Assyrian, this king and his army were not blameless. But God was using it for good to bring chastening to His nation and then cause them to return. At least a remnant of them, a small portion of them, would repent and return. Look at what it says here. Verse 7, But he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations, not a few. For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? Now this king of Assyria is the one that's saying, My princes are all altogether kings. Is not Kano, Kalno rather? And by the way, it's perhaps Kalna, thought to be the uh, a city on the Tigris River built by Nimrod as his capital in Genesis chapter 10, verse 10. As Karnish, Karmish, is not Hamath as Arphad, and is not Samaria as Damascus? In other words, he's saying these three different things about these nations. Damascus, the present day city in the capital of, is the capital of Syria. By the way, it's still the capital of Syria, isn't it? And it has enjoyed ongoing occupation since 2000 B.C. Its fate is described in Isaiah chapter 17 if we get, when we get over there. Now I want you to notice verse 10. It says, As my hand hath found the kingdoms of idols, of the idols, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? God says, Shall I not do, as I have done to Samaria and her idols, do to Jerusalem and her idols? It was sad that Jerusalem should have set up graven images. Jerusalem, the holy city, had set up graven images. It's sad when anything that God has chosen and given the blessings of His mercy and of His grace and His holiness should, should detour so much that they would set up images and follow evil nations and evil, well, we'll say evil uh, ecclesiastical leaders to set up images. That's sad. You say, well, we don't have any images. Well, I'm not so sure about that. We can set up images in our own minds. We can set up images in the church. We can set up images by putting some things that do not belong in the first place in the first place. You see, in the house of God, you know the things that should take priority. The preaching of the Word, the worshiping of God in spirit and in truth. I mean, we've got so many things we think ought to have a place. But a lot of them we just create of our own imagination. And we try to set up programs. You know, there are churches that their program is